0: He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? God is here, this is the gate of heaven. Surely God is here and I did not know it. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. God Almighty, you are the great king over all the earth. You reign over the nations as you sit on your holy throne. And we bow down toward your holy temple and we give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you are highly exalted. And you declare in Psalm 138 too, that you've exalted above all things your name and your word. The, gla- the grass withers, the flowers fade but the word of our God stands forever. So may your sufficient word speak truth, speak comfort, speak life to our weary and open hearts this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the one who is the word made flesh. We ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. By the way, that was the first verse that we studied on Sunday mornings as a previously known as church called Shoreline Church. That was our very first text that we studied. And it proved that day, eight years ago, to be a source of great encouragement not only for us as a starting fellowship, but for the church in Philippi, a small and faithful congregation in the city of Philippi, hearing these words from Paul, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. This verse gave certainty that the sovereign God will complete the work that he has begun in each one of our lives for his glory, for our good, for our growth and sanctification personally, and in our church corporately. That brings much comfort, much assurance. Every one of us as believers, no matter where we are at in our spiritual lives, can look back at the first few days and months of our faith. When we first knew Christ, when we first heard the truth of the gospel, when we responded in repentance and faith, when we were truly converted, we can look back at those early days and regard them as days where there was a lot of innocence and ignorance. There was a lot of fervor and zeal, and sometimes it was misplaced. There was a time when we were just beginning and we look back and say, those were moments of great immaturity. And yet now as we look back over time, we can say God has been faithful to continue to sanctify me And to work in me that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. We're still on that journey. And one day at the day of Christ, that work will be completed. But wow, what has God done since that day? I think all of us can say that. Often, many things that are great start out very humble and very small. If you think about it, the most profitable company in the world with a net revenue of $400 billion or so, it began with two men working out of their garage, And now almost all of us have some sort of product in our pockets made by Apple. The fast food company that has served billions and billions, don't raise your hand, McDonald's, they began as a small hamburger stand in uh, Southern California. And originally they sold hot dogs, which I'm so thankful they moved away from. Can you imagine McHot Dogs? UPS, we know the, uh, the great uh, delivery company, over 125,000 package vehicles, began with just one Model T Ford purchased in 1913. In fact, a teenager was trying to work hard at school because his dad promised him money for good grades. He took those dollars that he made off the good grades and started selling pencils. Eventually, he began doing mail orders. He started doing build-it-yourself furniture and now he grew his company into this massive retail store chain we know as Ikea. And if you've ever put together their furniture, maybe you're not too happy about it. But there's an old saying that says mighty oaks from little acorns grow. And that's true not only in the business world, it's true in our lives. He who began a good work in us will be sovereignly faithful to carry it on to completion. He's doing that good work in each one of your lives. In each one of our lives, God is working for good. And yet... We have to start somewhere. In the text that we look at this morning, we are going to see the humble beginnings of who will eventually become the great patriarch and son of Isaac, son of Abraham, the man we know as Israel. His sons will become what are known as the 12 tribes. His 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Jews may trace their heritage to Abraham, but they trace their namesake back to Israel. But before he's known as Israel, he's known as Jacob. And in the text this morning, we see the beginning steps of Jacob's brand new faith as God reveals himself to him. Last week, if you weren't here, we studied Genesis 27, and we saw how Jacob had stolen his brother's birthright by following his mother's deceptive plan to deceive her husband uh, into uh, basically giving the blessing to Jacob as Jacob pretended to be his older twin brother Esau. And we saw the depth of that deception as Jacob was in the midst of his father's questions and his father's suspicion. He consistently lied and defrauded his father. We saw last week how Esau then in revenge sought to kill him out of malice and envy. And Rebekah learned of his plan and then devised another scheme to send Jacob away to her brother Laban, a household that is around 3,000 miles, the distance of the, the coast of America to get away. And she had explained at the end of chapter 27 to Isaac, well, this is to secure a bride for our son from our family. And yet it was really ultimately to save his life from his brother's vengeance. And this morning, as we look at chapter 28, we're gonna see Jacob now stepping out to obey his family and to go to uh, Laban, but his trip is going to be interrupted by God himself. Jacob in this chapter will now meet with God, and he will now be a recipient of God's covenant, not just a hearer of it, but a partaker of it. And so we really do see the beginning of Jacob's journey as a man of faith, a man who's far from perfect, yet a man whom God loves and blesses. So if you're taking note, we're going to look at three sections of chapter 28. We're going to see the direction in verses 1 through 9, the direction that Jacob goes in. We'll see the dream that he has in verses 10 through 15, and this is where God reveals himself to him. And then we'll see his response to that dream in verses 16 through 22, the dedication. And as we study this text this morning, it's my prayer that we see Jacob's consecration in his early days of faith and thus we likewise come to understand God's work in our own lives, but particularly what does it mean to stand in God's presence? In other words, do we as Christ followers have the same advantage Jacob has at Bethel or do we have an even greater advantage as those who know Christ? Even though we are excited for our Israel trip next spring and I encourage you to sign up for it, is it necessary for us to fly to Jerusalem, than to take the bus 12 miles north to the same place, Bethel, in order for us like Jacob to meet with God, to experience the presence of God? Or as a new believer or as a seasoned saint, has God promised in Christ to be with us to the very end of the age, and thus we can take heart? My prayer is that we would do so today. So with that in mind, let's look at the first section, the direction, verses one through nine. It says, in verse one, then Isaac called Jacob and he blessed him, and he directed him. And the direction was: you're to go away from the promised land to our family Laban, and you're not to marry one of the Canaanite women. Now we met Laban back in chapter 24. Remember, Abraham's servant had traveled far to go to this same place, Padan Aram and to seek a wife for Isaac? Abraham's brother, Nahor, had a son named Bethuel, and Bethuel was the father of Rebekah, but he was also the father of Laban. So both Rebekah and Laban, as we'll meet in the upcoming studies, they both would have been Abraham's great niece and nephew. But as they send him to Laban, it was critical for Jacob not to intermarry with the Canaanite peoples. And here's the reason. If the greatest aspect of the Abrahamic covenant, it's not just the land, it's not just the extended peoples. If the greatest aspect was the preservation of the messianic line, then one of the greatest threats to the purity of that lineage would be intermingling your descendants with other peoples. And so it's critical that Jacob be sent to marry someone who was a descendant of Abraham and not necessarily uh, through Abraham and Isaac, not necessarily through Ishmael. And so we saw last week that Rebekah was using this, this as an excuse to send Jacob away, to safeguard him from Esau's threats. And so Isaac directs, directs Jacob, but then he begins to communicate the covenant that God had made with him to his son. Look at verse three. He begins by saying, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. He goes on to say, you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you so that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. This is a conveyance from father to son of what God had communicated to Isaac. But God himself has not yet established this covenant with Jacob. But notice with me in verse three, he begins by saying, God Almighty, this title we've learned before, we've read this before. It's the title in Hebrew, El Shaddai. God first revealed himself to Abram as El Shaddai back in Genesis 17. If you're taking note on the screen, we read when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. God Almighty is an appropriate translation of El Shaddai because Shaddai comes from the root word, which means to to put power on display. And the Septuagint, which translates the Hebrew into Greek, it actually uses the word that means the one who holds sway over all things, the one who is sovereignly over all things, the one who alone is the supreme ruler. So God Almighty is a great way of translating this. But some have additionally suggested that El Shaddai could also be known as the God who alone is sufficient. And I I think that's powerful. Not only does God have power, but God is sufficient. He has sufficient power to be sufficient for all that we need him to be. This was the name by which God revealed himself to the patriarchs. Exodus 6, 2 through 4. It says, God spoke to Moses and said, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El I? But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Now that might sound confusing at first because Yahweh is used 160 times in Genesis. So what God is saying here in Exodus to Moses is not that he had never been known as Yahweh, but that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, only knew him as the creator of the covenant not the fulfiller of it. They had the promises, but they did, not have the, they did not obtain the things that were promised. And so here, Isaac invites almighty God, El Shaddai, to bless and to multiply his son. He asked that God would, would allow Jacob, his son, to receive the blessing of his father, Abraham, and that one day he'll possess the land. Son, I'm praying that you will have this land, but verse five tells us he then sent him out of the land. This is not an exile because of Jacob's sin. This is because God was sovereignly ordaining this in Jacob's life to reveal himself to him. So we have that uh, part of the story. And then we take a little slight deviation to see what Esau does in verse 6. So some commentators call this, uh, verses 6 through 9, a contrasting anti climax. In other words, there's a contrast to what Jacob's doing in obedience. And now we have Esau's response as he looks at Jacob's obedience. Verse 6 says, now Esau saw Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him away. Verse 7, he saw that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and was not going to take a wife from the Canaanite women. So, verse 8, when he saw the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife. Besides the wives he had, Mahaleth, the daughter of Ishmael. Okay, at first glance, this happened to me this week as I was studying and reading this. At first glance, you and I may misread and thus misinterpret Esau's response here. When I first read this, I falsely believed that Esau saw Jacob's obedience and saw that this did not please, these Canaanite women did not please his parents. And so his response is, well, I'm gonna show them. I'm gonna rub my parents the wrong way and I'll marry a Canaanite woman. But that's not what's happening at all. In reality, Esau's third marriage is thrown contextually right here in the midst of Jacob's obedience to go to Padanaram, and it's instructive for us. Esau is not rebelling against his parents here. No, he sees Jacob obediently going to find a wife from their relatives, and he's looking at his own two wives. He's already disobeyed by multiplying wives. He now has two Hittite wives who are Canaanite. They've already proved to be a burden to his family, And so in light of Jacob's obedience and his parents' disapproval of the Canaanite women, he looks at his own life and says, well, I should probably, in a half-step way, try to please them. And so he says, well, let me marry someone who's at least a descendant of Abraham. But you've heard the phrase, you've heard this before, too little, too late. It's a little too little, a little too late. Now the birthright, now the blessing are important to Esau. So what does he do? He marries this woman. She's not a Canaanite. She is someone who's a descendant of Abraham. So that's, I guess, in the right direction. But unfortunately, it's one of Ishmael's descendants. And Ishmael, we know, is outside of the covenant. So Esau, don't be fooled. He's not demonstrating full defiance here, but neither is he demonstrating repentance he's maybe trying to atone for his previous failures. He may have been motivated by wanting to impress his father since Jacob had taken his birthright and his blessing and now had done the right thing, had gone off to Laban's house. But there's no indication here that Esau's motivated by the fear of the Lord or by seeking to please God. What he should have done is he should have turned and said, you know what, mom, dad, I'm gonna do what Jacob did. I also am gonna go to Laban. In fact, I'll follow right behind Jacob, and that would have stressed Rebecca out quite a bit, but I'm also going to obey and take a wife from there. But instead, he settles for what is close and convenient. And so if you and I compare and contrast Esau and Jacob's responses here, we actually learn a few valuable insights about obedience. The first thing we learn is that we don't merely follow the commands of Scripture, the law of God. We don't do so just to please our parents, or to please our pastors. We are not to be motivated by pleasing man, but by pleasing God. We don't just do things because that's what mom and dad or the, the Bible tells me, so I guess I have to do it. No, we do it because we want to be fully pleasing in his sight. We want to do, we want to be motivated by his glory, to enjoy him forever. And so not only that, but we also learned from Jacob particularly that obedience is not always easy. Often it is difficult to obey. It requires sacrifice and work. Jacob is leaving to go thousands of miles in to devote years of his life in order to do what his parents desire for him. What does Esau do? Esau, he just adds more trouble to an already difficult situation, and he settles for what is near and convenient. We should all know, half-hearted, half-hearted, partial obedience does not magically erase or undo a lifetime of foolish and sinful disobedience. We can't buy back a birthright that has been sold. And so in the same way, just trying to avoid the consequences for sinful behavior, that's not really repentance. That's not having a changed mind. I just want to get out of the consequences. So I'll do what's right and grit my teeth to get along. No, that's not repentance. Esau is not truly repentant here. He's not demonstrating obedience. Instead, he's taking what I think is a sorry step to try and get back into dad's good graces. But as he does so, it's going to prove unsuccessful because now Moses begins to focus his attention in the narrative of Genesis, not on Esau, the firstborn, but now our attention shifts and zooms into Jacob, the younger deceitful brother. And for the rest of Genesis, we will follow Jacob's line until eventually in the New Testament we come to Jesus, our Messiah. Now, as Jacob is sent out, he leaves the promised land, he leaves father, mother, brother, but now he's going to meet with the living God. So look at our second section in the dream, verses 10 through 15. It says in verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. This is north. This is, again, about 3,000 miles. And he's at this point about 50 miles from home. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Ostensibly traveling alone, very dangerous, very lonely. Now it's dark. And of all things for a pillow, he has a stone. And so we we have to wonder, what is Jacob thinking about right now? What are the thoughts racing through his mind? As he looks in the past, he realizes he had to lie and to deceive. Who? His father, a man of God, in order to gain what he wanted. He has stolen his brother's birthright, and now he's a man on the run. As he looks at his present condition, he's alone. He's isolated. He's, in the future, looking ahead, going to a place he's never been to before. And so not only did he lie and deceive his father, but we didn't really cover this last week. He used God's name in doing so. Do you remember that? Genesis 27, 20, Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found the game so quickly, my son? You're the best hunter we've ever known. How did you do this? And notice Jacob answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. By the way, that's the definition of breaking the third commandment, misusing God's name. Misusing God's name is not just saying God's name in a cuss word. Okay, it's when you misuse it, when you attribute to God things that are dubious, things that are incorrect. And that's what it is. The Lord your God, He did this. Is Jacob now thinking about that, saying, Have I jeopardized my standing with God? Is my father's God gonna forsake me for that? I have greatly sinned against my father and against God. As he thinks back, is he wondering about his brother's vengeance? Remember last week in Genesis 27, Esau was comforting himself by thinking, I'm going to kill my brother. And eventually that gets spoken out loud and Rebecca hears it. Is he leaving? Maybe he's walking as he comes over the crest of a hill and just looks back probably a dozen times wondering, is Esau pursuing me? Is he going to exact his revenge? It's getting dark out. He rests with a rock for a pillow. And I wonder what thoughts are going through his mind. Stephen Cole says this, quote, just think about this, you're confused. You thought that once you got what you always wanted and finagled to get, you'd have it made. But here you are on the run with nothing but meager supplies and a very uncertain future. He says, you also feel guilty. You cheated your brother. You lied to your blind old father used the name of his God, and even kissed him in your deception. And then, in spite of all that, he sent you off with the true spiritual blessing of your grandfather, Abraham. At this point, he says, God is the God of Abraham. He's the God of your father, Isaac, but he's not yet your God. And yet the burden of the blessing of the God of Abraham is on your shoulders. You're loaded with guilt and anxiety about the future. We can't know that for certain. The text doesn't say this, but it is possible. In fact, if there's ever a time for God to reveal himself to Jacob, it's here and now. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 12. It says, and he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So first thing I want you to point out, this is, let's not forget this, this is a dream. And so Jacob sees what is described here by Moses as a ladder. But uh, if you circle the word ladder, this is the only time in the entire Old Testament that this word particularly shows up. And so it either comes from the Hebrew word, which means to heap up like stones, like Jacob adding the pillar of his stone pillow and he's heaping it up. It's either coming from the Hebrew word for that or the Akkadian word, which means a stairway of steps. In fact, one commentary says that the description of the ladder reaching its top to heaven echoes the same description of the Tower of Babylon, which we know in Genesis 11 was a ziggurat. So it's very possible that that's what he sees in his mind's eye, in his dream. But either way, this is a place where heaven and earth are joined together. This is a place where God's presence dwells. This is a place where messengers and servants of God, they come and they go and they do God's work on the earth and then return to his presence. This place, this ladder represents the nearness of God, the concern of God, the activity of God. And if there was anything that Jacob needed in that moment, it was the nearness of God, the concern of God, and the activity of God. And suddenly in the midst of that, God himself appears and speaks. Look at verse 13. We keep seeing these words, behold. It means pay attention, listen up. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. You see, no longer does Jacob have to hear the covenant transmitted from his dad, passed down just from his father. Now he can hear it from God himself. God communicates to Jacob the same covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac. And it's now away from Beersheba. It's in this place, Bethel. If you're taking note on the screen, this is a summary of God's covenant with Jacob. First of all, he says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the God of your fathers. He gives them the identity statement. This is who I am. And then secondly, he gives him the promise of the land. The land is now given to you and it's given to your descendants, even where you're laying here. So not just Beersheba, but even here. Tells them, you're gonna spread out to the north and the south and the east and the west. Then he says, your offspring will be numerous as the dust of the earth. And finally, there's one addition here. We've already known that in your seed, in the Messiah, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But here, God adds the additional in you, in Jacob, in you, and in the Messiah, the families of the earth will be blessed. So Jacob could now rest in these specific promises of God to him, not just about him. You could say it this way. It was no longer grandfather's faith. It was no longer dad or mom's faith. It's now Jacob's. It's his to receive. Now, if that's all we had, God's covenant promise, that would have been enough, but it gets better. Notice verse 15. This has to be the best part of it. God says, again, behold, pay attention, listen up. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Charles Spurgeon said, hey, God's promises to Jacob were much, but they were nothing compared with this statement, I am with thee. You see, God's presence and God's blessing will be with Jacob now and into the future. Notice that last part of that sentence in verse 15. In fact, if you have a pen, would you just underline that whole thing? This is the most important thing I want you to know. He says, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God is assuring Jacob here that, hey, I'm gonna bring you back into this land. It's going to happen. And through it all, I'm gonna continue to be with you. And so I like what the Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary said. They say, quote, the design of this vision... Was to afford comfort, encouragement, and confidence to the lonely fugitive, both in his present circumstances and as to his future prospects. To dispel his fears and allay the inward tumult of his mind, nothing was better fitted. Quote. You see, God Almighty, God the All Sufficient, El Shaddai, has just met with Jacob, has revealed himself to him. And Jacob's life is now forever changed. God says, I'm with you here. I'm going to be with you there. I'll be with you until you come back. I'll never leave you. I'm with you, Jacob. And that's exactly what he needed to hear. So now as we come to our third section, there is a a marked change in our heel-catching deceiver. Something has changed. He's met with the living God. And so let's look at this last section, the dedication. Verse 16 says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Now, just draw your attention to verse 17. He was afraid, and then he uses a word that we have dumbed down in our culture the word is awesome. Sadly, we have dumbed down that word. We have cartoons that say everything is awesome. And so pizza is awesome. My wife is awesome. And traffic is not awesome. And so we've we've really dumbed this word down. The idea is that it is invoking awe. We stand before a holy God. It invokes awe. And so we really should reserve this word not to just say, yeah, those tacos were awesome. We should reserve this word for the one who alone invokes the greatest awe. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? God is here. This is the gate of heaven. Surely God is here and I did not know it. Now, there is simultaneously a correct and an incorrect statement here. So he's correct. The Lord is here. Yes and amen. But what did I just have you underline? I just had you underline where God had said, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised to you. So Jacob is correct. The Lord surely is here and the Lord will be with him everywhere he goes, but he's incorrect if he believes the Lord is only here. We know the psalmist David in one of the most comforting psalms in Psalm 139.7 says or asks the question, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? In a sense, that's a rhetorical question, but the answer is nowhere. There's nowhere that we can go. We can ascend to the highest heights. We can descend to the depths of Sheol. God is present. There's nowhere we can go to escape. I've said this before. For the unbeliever, that is terrifying. If you're an unbeliever here today, there is nowhere you can go to escape the presence of God. You can hide out as much as you want. He is near. He is present. But for the believer, that's incredibly comfort, or comforting. There's nowhere we can go that God is not with us. So Jacob may be more aware of God's nearness and aware of God's activity here, but that doesn't mean that God's not gonna be with him when he goes to Haran. I believe this is part superstition and part spiritual ignorance. I think Jacob here is overcooking this idea that this location, this spot right here is where God is. Uh, What he needs to do is rest in the truth of what God has just spoken, to trust in God's word, and not to overthink, to overestablish this particular spot as the only place that is the house of God. God says, no matter where you go, Jacob, I'm with you. I'm present. Now, notice what happens in response. And what happens can only be summarized as a change in Jacob's character. So, so there's some things to be encouraged by and some things that we can um, still see he's not growing yet. He's still a new ish believer. So verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. So his pillow now becomes a memorial stone. And notice that he, he anoints it with oil. And in, in so doing, what he's actually establishing is that this is a symbolic, a consecrating of this stone as holy. He's going to look back and remember this, which God encourages Israel to do over many, many generations. Set up these memorial stones to look back and remember my faithfulness. Anointing it with oil is saying this is dedicated to God. It's holy. It's set apart for him. Not only that, but verse 19, he then calls the name of that place Beth Elohim. That's the full way of saying the house of God. Beth, house, Elohim, God. Now the city we learn in verse 19 was called Luz. As a noun, it means almond tree, something very common, very ordinary. But now that God is here, it's elevated. It's his house, Bethel, the house of God. Now this city, Bethel, this region would become a very important place in Israel's history. It's so important that it's mentioned more times in the Old Testament than any other city of Israel, except for Jerusalem. So we have Jerusalem mentioned the most, and underneath it, Bethel. Sadly, however, Bethel, this exact place, would eventually become what's known as a high place where Israel would go to sacrifice to fallen false gods, to idols. In verse 20, Jacob goes more than just renaming the place. He actually then makes a vow. Verse 20 says, he made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. Anybody see what I saw? Jacob is giving a condition of obedience or a condition of following to an unconditional promise of God. Jacob is having a gradual change of heart, but he still has a long way to go. Notice, if God will be with me. Now, some commentators try to soften the blow, and they say, well, just introduce the word since here. So read it this way. Since God will be with me, then he'll be my God. It doesn't seem to make very much sense. Not only that, in the original language, it's if. It's not used as since. I'm persuaded that Jacob here is saying, okay, I hear you, God, and uh, here's my end of the bargain. If you, if you will be with me, if you will keep me, if you'll bring me back and, you know, give me some food and clothing, then I will make you my God. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 22, and of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. God, I promise scouts honor, I will give you money. I'll give you one tenth of all that I have, if you're faithful to fulfill your promise. Now, certainly you and I have never done that, We've never made bargains with God. God, if the light changes green, then I will promise to obey (laughs) your word. There's some things to celebrate here in Jacob's life. Remember, he's a schemer. So I'm encouraged. We don't see Jacob seeking to capitalize on this experience. He doesn't go into the town of Luz and set up a booth here saying, come and buy miniature ladders. Hey, I have paid tours for you to come see the house of God. Hey, I'd like to start a ministry called Heaven's Gate. You can give now online. He doesn't do any of those things. I believe he's been genuinely impacted by God. He does vow to tithe of his income, to live a life set apart in worship to Yahweh. He's living a life consecrated, but he still has a long way to go. You see, his response here in giving this condition shows he doesn't truly understand who God is, and he certainly doesn't understand what grace is. He puts a condition on an unconditional promise. Jacob wants to make a deal with God. He made a deal with Esau. In a way, he made a deal with his father. Eventually, he's going to try to wheel and deal with Laban, but Laban's also a wheeler and dealer, so he's going to get a taste of his own medicine, as we'll see in future studies. But as Jacob walks with Yahweh, he starts somewhere, and God is faithful to be at work. And in our own lives, we can learn from Jacob in this chapter and find both hope and encouragement that we start somewhere. Jacob's conniving doesn't end with dressing up like his brother. He's going to scheme in Haran. He's going to go toe-to-toe with Laban. And one day he'll also wrestle with the angel of the Lord. Even as he's making these foolish decisions, God never forsakes him. God never abandons him. God teaches him God matures him and God orchestrates the situations of Jacob's life to eventually change his name, his identity from the deceiver to Israel, the one who's governed by God, the one who is wrestled with God. And he who began a good work in you will also graciously, slowly, patiently, sovereignly bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We're not there yet. Hopefully we're growing and we're seeing his work, his skill in sanctifying us. And yet one day it'll be complete and we will be like him. We'll be conformed into the image of Christ. And so in the meantime, may we trust him to be at work. We may not see the evidence of his work up close and personal. Maybe others have to vouch. No, God is at work in your life, brother. Sister, you may not see it, but he's doing something in you. He's drawing you closer. Now, as we apply this text, I want to answer two questions this morning. So two questions for us. The first one is this. Is God present with his people in moments of despair and confusion? As we look at this critical moment in Jacob's spiritual life, we observe God was not afar off. God was not exiling Jacob because of his sin. No, what was God doing then? He was bringing Jacob to an end of himself. Why? So that he could truly see and value who God was. Again, Stephen Cole, he says this, quote: Do you see how Jacob must have felt? Until now, he has always schemed his way out of tight spots, but now he's fresh out of schemes. He's on his own for the first time, wrestling with a guilty, confusing past and facing an anxious, uncertain future. It's significant that God begins working with Jacob at this point in his life, it's the first time the Lord got Jacob's attention. Jacob saw his great need, end quote. In the midst of our despair or our loss, sometimes you and I can mistakably believe, oh, well, God is afar off. But see, the word reminds us over and over and over. Psalm 119, 151 and Philippians 4, 5 remind us the Lord is near. Psalm 34.18 says, not only that, the Lord is near to whom? To the brokenhearted. I know there are some here in our fellowship that have great loss recently, and there's a comfort in knowing that the psalmist says the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He's not afar off. Not only that, but Psalm 145.18, this is how available he is. The Lord is near to all who call on him. So call upon him. We know these words. These tender words of comfort from Isaiah 41, 10, fear not, why? For I am with you. And then of course, Jesus, the most comforting of all, before he ascends says not only to the 11, but to all disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Church, do you believe this? Well, of course you do, it's Sunday. (laughs) Do you believe this in the thick and the heat of the trial? Perhaps the Lord has orchestrated the difficulties you've experienced even recently. Not to punish you, but to prod you, to stop looking to other solutions, to other strategies, and simply come and rest in the personal work of Christ. Adore him. He's doing that work in you. God has not forsaken you, believer. He's near. He's present. But that brings up an important follow-up question for us. Number two, do we need to visit a certain location to meet with God? In other words, is God's presence localized today in a special place or in a special way? Like here in the church building. You may have your quiet time tomorrow on Monday, and you think, you know, it was great reading the Bible this morning, but if I could have gone up to the church building, that's where God really is. Is that the case? Do we need to be in a building somewhere to experience a spiritual awakening or revival, or even just an awareness of God's presence? Is it wrong to sing to the Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, come flood this place and fill the atmosphere? See, I bring this up because in our text in providential timing, there's been a purported awakening or revival at Asbury University. And I don't wanna comment on the activity itself, because I believe it's actually way too early to call this a revival. Um, But I would encourage everyone to go out and purchase Jonathan Edwards on Revival. It's a book that uh, Banner of Truth has for sale. And if anyone has the authority to speak about revival, it's Jonathan Edwards. What has happened in Kentucky, if you haven't heard, I'm not gonna talk much about it. Um, I wanna talk about the church as a community and the church's response to it. You see, what's happened is going to come and go. But what I'm most concerned about is the broader body of Christ flocking to Kentucky, to Asbury, to catch the Holy Spirit or to experience what's happening there. And the question is, is that necessary? Is that where God, where is God's spirit right now? Well, he's actually up in Asbury University. Or is God here as well? You see, when we look in the scriptures, the scriptures tell us about God's presence And the first thing that we have to understand is God is spirit. God is not limited spatially to a physical body. Sometimes he does reveal himself through localized ways, like he did with Moses in the burning bush. But this does not mean God is only in the bush or that the bush itself is God and we need to worship the bush. In fact, in the Garden of Eden, God, we read, walked with Adam in the cool of the day. His presence was localized in a way that Adam could experience unbridled nearness, Fellowship and friendship with the creator. Can you imagine? But we know what happened because of the fall. The holy God banished mankind from standing unscathed in his presence. Sin entered the world. Sin separated us from God's presence. Now, eventually, as we'll get to it later in the Old Testament, God instructs Israel to construct a tabernacle, a tent, where God's Shekinah glory will relocate from the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire to the most holy place, a place within this tabernacle, this tent that you could set up and take down. And eventually that finds its way to Jerusalem, where God instructs Solomon to construct a more permanent dwelling place in the temple, where God would meet with man and where God would mediate his covering of man's sin through the justice of blood but there was still a problem. The veil in the temple prevented mankind from unrestricted access to the presence of God like we experienced in the garden. Sin was still a reality. There was no unobstructed way to meet with God and live until Christ came. We read it earlier in our assurance of pardon, John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt there can be translated Tabernacled, the same idea. The one who is the dwelling place with man, God's dwelling place. It's no longer resigned to the garden. It's no longer resigned to the tent in the wilderness or to behind the veil in a building. No, the word became flesh. He now dwells with us. Revelation 21, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Jesus is the Word made flesh. We now can experience the presence of the Father without the fear of sin taking our lives. Why? Because of who Christ is. Not only this, though, but the Holy Spirit is not a wind to be caught. The Holy Spirit, we learn in Scripture, dwells within all believers. Where's the Holy Spirit today? Where? Look around. He is within each and every follower of Christ. Acts chapter two, Pentecost was evidence that God's presence is no longer localized in one building. He is present within all believers. First Corinthians six, Paul says, do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? It's the same word used that Solomon built this temple. You are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Church, we don't have to chase An experience with the Holy Spirit. He is with us today. El Shaddai, God Almighty, is as present here this morning as he was there in Bethel, as people purport him to be in Asbury. So our response to these things is we should pray for revival. We should pray for renewal. We should pray for a spiritual hunger and awakening in the church. Why? Because as Tom Askell says, that's the only hope for America, for our nation, for the world. That's the only hope is that God would do a great work in his church and through his church, but we don't have to go find it by visiting a building. God can do anything he desires to do, and he can do it and will do it among us. Now, as we consider Jacob's experience here, we realize the ladder he perceives, it's a bridge between heaven and earth. It's the location, it's the place where fallen man can commune with the almighty God. And it's here that angels ascend and descend. Now listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 1. To Nathanael, Jesus said, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What is Jesus saying to Nathanael? He's saying, he's using the same language as Genesis 28. And he's saying, I am the latter. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the one whereby fallen man can commune with the Almighty God. Matthew Henry says it so well. He says, quote, all the intercourse between heaven and earth since the fall is by this ladder. Christ is the way. All God's favor come to us and all our services go to him by Christ. If God dwell with us and we with him, it is by Christ. We have no way of getting to heaven but by this ladder, if we climb up any other way, we are thieves and robbers. It is all owed to Christ who has reconciled things on earth and things in heaven and has united all things in him. End quote. Jesus is the ladder. As we close, the hymnist said, Come, let us ascend. All may climb it who will. For the angels of Jacob are guarding it still. And remember each step that by faith we pass over. Some prophet or martyr has trod it before. This ladder is long. It is strong and well-made, has stood hundreds of years and is not yet decayed. Many millions have climbed it and reached Zion's hill. By faith, many millions are climbing it still. And our response is this, Alleluia to Jesus who died on the tree and has raised up a ladder of mercy for me. Amen. He who began a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ. Let's stand together. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church Meets at 9 a.m and 10 45 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.